This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hey, 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 how are you doing? Thank you so much for tuning in. Now, I'm not quite sure how this happened, but in today's episode, I had to pinch myself a little because I'm chatting to the actual CEOs of actual Friends of the Earth. It's safe to say I was a little bit nervous and felt very much out of my depth chatting to them, but they were both incredibly lovely. And it was great to hear more about them, their journeys to get to being CEOs of such a huge charity and to hear more about Friends of the Earth because I think most of us have heard of Friends of the Earth and have maybe, probably, even signed one of their petitions at some point. But I wanted to hear more about the impact that the charity has had over the last 50 years and, importantly, what their plans are going forwards as we really kind of enter crunch time. So have a listen. Let me know what you think. What would you have asked them that I didn't? And if you enjoy this episode, please do leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, rave about it to your friends. So have a wonderful week. I will catch you next time and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the show. We have two guests with us today, which is really exciting. We have Miriam Turner and Hugh Knowles, who are the new CEOs, is that right, of Friends of the Earth, which is super exciting. So Miriam, hello, welcome. Hey, great to meet you. This is all very exciting. How long have you guys been in the role? Um, We have been in the role. I guess now we can't call ourselves brand new anymore. It's been (laughs) since since the beginning of January that we took over as permanently as co-executive directors. Yeah, and we were actually in the interim role. Prior to that, we started in the interim CEO role in February 2020, which was literally a matter of weeks, of course, before we had to move into it shutting down offices and uh, and managing through all the you know craziness that everyone has been dealing with so yeah so yeah that first year was somewhat more than we expected I bet yeah. I bet nobody nobody saw that coming did they but um no. before we dive into the um you know talking about friends of the earth and all that what's what's your background Miriam um my background is ecological sciences at uh, Edinburgh University went on and then did a, a sustainability master's with Forum for the Future and ended up working in, in business, a company called Interface, that's one of the pioneers of kind of circular economy and sustainable innovation, mm. and always worked there on collaborative 
collaborative innovation, lots of partnering work, often with a, you know, with a social angle as well, although Interface is a, is a manufacturing company. So that was a, a great, a great place to kind of grow up professionally, as it were. Mm. And then moved post having twins, realizing that actually that was entirely incompatible with uh, with an international kind of role in a global wow. Atlanta-based organization, and left and ended up chatting to Hugh about a job that we'd seen the innovation director role at Friends of the Earth. That was wow. a good few years ago, and then we ended up applying for that as a job share. So, talk to me about your twins. How old are they? They had their seventh birthday yesterday. So oh. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the kind of post, you know, the parental like yeah. calm down after the hecticness of a party. Uh, and in a way, it's rather a relief to be in the office today, I have to say. But it was great. It was wow. low key. One always says low key parties, right? But then it never is. It's in a park. There's lots of children. It's chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> there's never enough shade. Well, there wasn't yesterday. Yes, but it was yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and whereabouts are you based? Bristol. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. I'm not too far. I'm in um, Wiltshire, so yeah, not too far. Oh, um, yeah. Boys, boys, one of each or? One of each, one of each flavour, yes. Oh my goodness me. So yeah. you thought, oh, it's a bit too, it's a bit too mad having this role in this international company. I'll just go and head up one, you know, this massive charity. <laughs> That'll be much easier. <laughs> that wasn't the original <laughs> plan. Um, the best laid plans. No, it's never been a kind of, I've never been one of those people that had a big kind of intention or aimed for a role I've followed opportunities and what emerges and interesting mm. work and people really but the innovation role was it was really good when we saw that ad it was clearly I suppose the thing that, that I think Hugh and I both saw coming was was that climate work sustainability work just there's, there's a limit to how much you can do in a in a corporation mm. Even the most visionary of corporations, given the structure that they have, the public ownership, the quarterly mm. priorities. So I wanted to both go more kind of local to the U to in the UK and more focused on communities and what people could actually yeah. do do here. So Brilliant. so yeah, and the innovation role was where we started. Super. So Hugh, how about you? How um what's your background? Whereabouts are you? All those things. <laughs> Uh, so saying it after Miriam always sounds a little bit like we are sort of Tweedledum and Tweedledee because <laughs> I did ecological know, sciences at Edinburgh University. <laughs> okay, we didn't know each other. <laughs> you didn't meet each other But we no, no, we didn't. I mean, I was there slightly before Miriam. Um, and I then, wasn't going to hazard a guess as to who was who was there first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and then and then I um, via some fairly interesting roles after my degree where. You know, my passion in the environmental issues was not met by the job opportunities that were <laughs> <laughs> available. I ended up working at Forum for the Future, where Miriam also did a master's, and I was there for 12 years. Wow. And I also ended up, you know, working, you know, with large multinationals, you know, on how do they take a long-term approach to the, you know, the climate and mm. ecological emergency with varying degrees of success. Um, but it was a really... You know, it was, again, it was another great place to have the sort of formative part of your career. Uh, and I learned a lot doing it. Mm. And it was, in you know, in parts rewarding and in parts very frustrating. That's quite interesting that you've both like been in that sort of business space and 
I don't know if you would echo Miriam's thoughts that, you know, it, it became difficult to sort of effect the change maybe she wanted to in, in a sort of corporate space. Because one of the arguments I hear a lot is, well, you know, there's, there's no point in individual action. We need businesses to change. We need government to change and that kind of thing. And actually, it sounds almost a little bit like you're going, well, there's, there's this amount that I as an individual can influence in a, in a corporate. But actually, I feel like there's, I don't know, maybe I'm putting words into your mouth, more power in communities or I don't know. Uh, I think we should always avoid binaries in this yes, situation. Yeah, where... yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my answer is always, well, we need all three, clearly. Yeah, Yeah, we need we need action in all of them. I think, I mean, part of it was that after 12 years of working on it, I'd reached the end of my ability to work mm. on it. So there's, there's a certain amount of time you can devote to these things, particularly, you know, it, if you've been working in this field for a long time, then there's always the danger of kind of, of burnout. Mm, and yeah. if you're really, you know, if you're a passionate if you're passionate, if you feel really passionately about these issues and progress is slow, then eventually yeah. you do get to the point where you're like, I have to, I have to try something else because mm. if not, then I'm going to. But I think that the situation has, I think in actually in the last six to 12 months has changed quite dramatically. So I last spent, you know, I was last engaged in corporate work, you know, five, six years ago. So before the birth of my second child so which is when I took paternity leave from right. the future and then didn't didn't come back and I and my wife actually still works in sort of corporate sustainability and I think there has been in the last six months a fairly profound shift and that's partly because you know the world has continued to grind out pressure against you know corporations and the world the context has changed but also investor pressure there's a lot of investor pressure and we started to see some of that activist shareholder pressure on things, you know, the business models of fossil fuel companies. Uh, and I think it is, you know, it is starting to shift. The, the thing that I always found very frustrating was that a lot of corporations had very ambitious sustainability goals and they spoke mm -hmm. a really great game and really believed in it, I think, at, at the top mm -hmm. of the organisation. But often you'd find that the funding or the business models wouldn't really allow any really divergent or revolutionary work, mm. particularly when it got down further into, you know, if you were working with a big multinational, you might have that very amazing vision at the top. But then when it came down to sort of product categories, yeah, the, West right, yeah, yeah. the managers there just, it would be incredibly hard for them to be able to deliver on that agenda mm. because they still had the traditional business targets to deliver mm. against. Yeah. And it was only the situations where you generally saw transformation was those organisations who went, oh, my God, you know, we are completely and utterly dependent on the natural world, mm. not only in terms of resources, but also in terms of stability, supply chain, you know, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is not, not just from a, you know, it's our moral duty, but also from a practical and business point of view we have to we have to change yeah there is definitely. only one there's only one way this is going and it's going to get harder and tougher and we need to i mean particularly those organizations with agricultural supply chains if you look long term their only answer was we have to be regenerative because yeah, otherwise yeah, yeah, yeah. you know the pathway is soil that runs out yeah no it's, <laughs> it's the ability to support agriculture so, yeah it's yeah. mildly terrifying um yeah. so how old are your small people <laughs> so they are five and seven Okay, so actually, yeah, you've got quite similar age kids as well. And are you Bristol based or are you somewhere else entirely? I'm just outside Bath. Oh, are you? Oh, so pretty we close. Can, we'll all have to meet up for coffee. Um, there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, just that the, when we both started out in Friends of the Earth, we, were, we both had very young children. And the job share is very much our way of being able to still maintain 
you know, keep a large role in yeah. childcare and be able to do the job at the same time. And so a big advocates of that approach, if you are lucky enough to be able to take that approach, which of course not everybody is. And are you literally, I mean, you're both obviously here at the same time now, but are you literally doing two and a half days each or are you both just working full time on this and doing two people's work <laughs> on one job? <laughs> Miriam do you want to <laughs> yeah we do we do three days we do three days each and have an overlap day and have an, have some overlap yeah and what was interesting is you can you know when when COVID hit at the beginning and we were in a lot of looking after people and the operational side of that you were able to kind of go up mm. in in hours and kind of go up mm. and down so there's just yeah so there's a lot of flexibility in it and we always like you to be the one to talk about job shares, because I think whenever I say I have a job share, there is always an inherent assumption that it's another woman. Right. Yeah. Which is which is interesting. When, and here I am saying Hugh's point. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> the one. So when we were doing the interviews for the role, we kind of went in. I think it was you that said you said I should I, I want to lead on the job share bit when yeah. we asked about why we're doing that, because, you know, as what's that? What was that? The what's that follow on to the lean in? book oh gosh I can't remember but it was just it was just making the point that this this whole thing is not just about women Mm. being able to work it's also about men being able to be present in families and every way around yeah job shares are not a solution to women going back into work after pregnancy (laughs) yeah they're a a solution to parents having a balance yeah Yeah. definitely and if you again it's you know it's a matter of if you can yeah and uh, yeah, and and do you find as well that I would just imagine just being able to share that load with someone else and go, do you think uh, this is right? Like what, mm, having someone to, I mean, I know presumably you've always got a, you know, a deputy or somebody underneath you, but to be able to, um, and you know, if one of you's having a like, oh my God, this is really hard day. Hopefully the other one's having a, come on, we can do this day and all that kind of thing. Is that, is that helpful for you? Yeah, it's always a bit of a worry when you check in and you're like both three out of ten. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, really help. It does really help. And I think, I mean, as Miriam said, you know, we took over the interim job, which was um, now I realise misleadingly sold as a four to five month caretaker role. You know, with a with a strategy <laughs> a in place. Yeah, it was with with a you know campaigns <laughs> in place and everything just smooth sailing from that moment until mm-hmm. the new chief executive, new executive director came in, and then you know month one. Do we close the entire organization, yeah. move remote, start, you know, looking at what furloughing that, you know, revise wow, the budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so to have someone else to be able to bounce those ideas off is is amazing. And I, I you know, the danger is that this these roles can be very lonely and mm, can yeah, be yeah. very can be very stressful and can induce sort of high levels of anxiety and stress. And if you know, it's a shame that you then cut out a swathe of people who might not be able to deliver the role if you can't cope with that yeah. whereas with a job share I feel like it offers up more of an opportunity for you know a broader range of people to take on the role as well as it being a great thing once you're you know in the role it feels much less daunting to think like we're gonna I mean even like this is this is going to be the most ridiculous comparison but even um like the PTA at school like if I I, I first did it 
as a co-chair with somebody because that was handed much much easier than kind of launching in and doing it on my own and oh um so the most ridiculous comparison ever but I, I can completely understand um that it's much nicer doing it with somebody else no it's not ridiculous at all. it's it's just we're social creatures aren't we and I think we're there's just there's something about strengthening your yeah strengthening your ideas and bouncing things around and also mm. feedback you know it's just so helpful to know that there's always someone yeah. who it's a kind of enlightened self-interest thing for each of us obviously we each want to be the best we can and do the best job we can as custodians mm, here at friends mm. of the earth for whatever period we're here so when we come out of a meeting we'll say I think that landed really well yes I noticed that that this maybe didn't mm, would have mm. been better and it's that's another aspect yeah it's just a kind of constant yeah feedback yes yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah constant feedback coach. you have to know each other quite well I would think to be able to, oh, yeah. to... <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of live feedback yeah yeah <laughs> do you do you ever get that look from each other shut up no. oh, definitely. <laughs> I always remember like coming out of a, a meeting or where I've been presenting and you know Miriam's first comment was did you realize that you were folding your arms the entire time you were talking and it looked <laughs> very defensive but the weird but the strange thing is that you know we've been in a job share for a long time and I don't I find it incredibly useful actually to have that mm. feedback often you again so often in life we don't really get that much constructive feedback yes. useful useful in the moment feedback people aren't very it's a very hard thing to do well mm. yeah having been in a job share a long time you get that but the other thing is, you know, we live in such a complex and volatile world that, you know, the idea that sort of one person is, I don't know, going to hold on to a lot of the answers is sort of nonsense yeah. anyway. I'm not saying that two people necessarily have the answers, <laughs> but at least, but at least, Double it, the chance. but at least, well, but also just it starts to sort of dissipate that idea of yes. one person. You know, it just, even, even that, that approach just shows that there is a different way of doing things. Yeah, 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 definitely. And it, it's interesting because culturally people still find it quite tricky. Yeah, my wife's in a job share as well. And when looking for jobs, it's not all, not, not all organisations welcome that approach. Yeah, definitely. I wouldn't think so at all. And um, so, Miriam, I think most of us have probably heard of Friends of the Earth. And we might have a vague idea about what you do. But can you tell us actually what you do? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I get this from lots in, of In two sentences, please, if you could, that'd be great. Yeah, so we are an environmental campaigning organisation. We've been around for 50 years, standing alongside people fighting environmental injustice all over the world. So the mm. Friends of the Earth is actually an international federation. We're in 73 countries. Wow. Majority um, global south. I mean, our role here is Friends of the Earth, England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Yeah. And we've all, all, all the campaigns that Friends of the Earth has, has ever done has really been people powered. So it's not, you know, sat in a think tank, putting out clever reports and, you know, and, and suggesting policies, although we do have, of course, lots of clever people thinking about that. But it's saying, how can we bring people along with us? How can we get the right, the right kind of voices mm. influencing so that we do, I suppose, create the small p politics and the society that will be able to then land the big transformative policies often you know government because they have the big levers but also devolved levels of responsibility so nationally regionally mm. locally so council level we've been doing a lot on so it's all kind of people powered 
change. Yeah. Essentially. And some of the, you know, some of the things that people may or may not have associated with Friends of the Earth are the, the Climate Change Act, which was the first act globally to have legally binding reduction targets. That was a Friends of the Earth campaign. Wow. You know, with thousands of people, thousands of, yeah. you know, lots of our, our groups being involved. And that was then replicated all over, you know, mm. all over the world. The fact that we have the climate change committee, the CCC, who gives the independent advice to government on how we how we get there, that was part of what we advocated wow. for. Said, you know, all very well to have a target, but then you need yeah, to yeah, yeah. account. So, you know, doorstep recycling. I know, you know, when we talk about the scale of things that needs to happen, sometimes recycling might to some feel kind of mm. down the pecking order, but that's another thing that will affect everyday life. And one of those things we do every week, put out our recycling. That yeah. was a friend of the earth campaign to get the household recycling, the recycling act. I think sometimes it's it's a quite easy to feel like, I don't know if it's, it's just a, a lot of the big um, sort of green charities and things feels like an awful lot of petitions but it's a lot more than that isn't it like my my sort of email inbox will be like oh Greenpeace want me to sign another petition and Friends of the Earth want me to sign another petition but I hadn't sort of I interviewed somebody I don't know if it was last year or the year before about how sort of political campaigning works and I hadn't realized at all kind of how it worked and how um you know it's oftentimes somebody like Friends of the Earth who comes up with a bill and then they go to an MP and get them to support it and then you know and I, I was like wow, I didn't know this was how it worked, but it's it's actually really interesting. So it's it's about far more than petitions, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and also just, you know, the thing that you have to remember is that our power and legitimacy comes from the hundreds of thousands of people who take action with us. Yeah. And, you know, petitions are a great way for finding out who out there in the world is, you know, wants to take action. They're always they're always a first step, not an end. They're, a, you know, means not an end in itself. Right, yeah, yeah. And particularly because, you know, with a lot of the rise of kind of digital activism, it's become a lot easier to do that mm. kind of thing. You know, they are definitely not a, an end, often not an end, but they're a great tool. They're one tool in the sort of panoply of things that you can deploy. Yeah. And then the great thing is you get to then say, well, look, we have a lot of people who are really exercised by this issue. The next steps are X, Y and Z. Yeah. And that can range from everything from... And this is one of the things where I think Friends of the Earth is really strong, is that we are capable of doing everything from being on the ground in communities, listening, standing next to people, hearing their concerns, working out what the issues that really matter to them. We can also be in the planning inquiries, in, mm. the, legal, in the legal challenges in the Supreme Court, yeah. you know, drawing up policy you know, at government, you know, whether that's the local or the national level, and even at the global stage. And so, you know, we have the capability of going all the way from that, holding someone, you know, making a cup of tea for someone, standing next to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right up to that level. And that is what is required because you need to be able to take into account the global picture. You need to understand the, the ge global geopolitics, the global science, and you need yeah. to be able to trans that, translate that down to a global level. And you need to do it the other way around. You need to be able yeah. to say, this is how these issues translate into a local agenda and you know what's what's meaningful to people right now what are the changes yeah. they really want to see what's what are they passionate about so this is your 50th year anniversary isn't it it's quite easy to feel quite despondent and feel like what's changed in 50 years like you guys have been doing this work for the since what's that 1971 
what's what's really changed it feels like we're in an even worse state than we were back then do you how yeah I mean what has changed from your perspective Miriam I think well I firstly emphasize with that feeling and on an existential level of course that's Mm. it's something that we all think about however we do have the vast majorities of countries now who who are responsible for the majority of emissions now signed up to net zero targets you know 2050 Mm. or earlier and we do have if we just take in the UK a, over 80% of people recognizing that you know climate change is a thing mm. it's a problem that needs to be solved so i think we can't we can't discount the importance of that shift into the mainstream that has been that that has taken yes longer than we would have anyone would have wanted but that that is there now so awareness is in a very different place mm. and action is in a very different place in terms of political mainstream. So it seems to us that the territory is now shifted from awareness raising and being on the edge to this being very much about the how now. Yeah. It's not about the whether we do it, it's about how do we do it. Yeah. And and we think the the part that Friends of the Earth is going to advocate strongly for, which builds on our, you know, our, our really our legacy of working on on justice-based angle on environmental issues is how fairly is this transition yeah. that's coming going to happen of yeah. course how fast it's it's still going to be how fast but how fairly who's going to benefit from this transition mm. yeah who's going to be able to participate in this transition and what's the world that we're, we're going to end up with because it's wonderful that things are moving and everyone's jumping in in many ways but also everyone's jumping in yeah and not all of them have that same frame of this needs to be fast I mean look yeah. at the industrial revolution that took between you know arguably up to 100 years for the benefits of that transition yeah. to reach you know the average person we just can't afford for that to happen yeah. this time because if that does happen and there's further alienation of vast swathes of people the the societal the stability I mean look at the chaos of the last few years and what we've seen mm. those cracks are still there yeah if we exacerbate them we're just not going to have the social or political stability to be able to make the changes that we need yeah we think it's kind of both the right thing that we think about the, the fairness aspect and we advocate strongly there but it's also just pragmatically practically politically it's the only way that the the, the environmental movement's going to stay relevant and be as impactful as we need to be yeah Hugh we're recording this like the day after um the G7 summit did you did you guys go down there or presumably you had a presence there did you or no no not really I mean obviously we're following closely what's going on I mean with those events it is always there is always such a sort of scrum Mm, it's very difficult to know what is the best course of action I mean we follow the developments closely and if you look in the media you will find us commenting on the outcomes and you know, I think one, you know, once again, the commitments and the action do not match the rhetoric. No, that's what I wanted to ask you. Do you feel like the political will is genuinely there, or it just, to me, as you know, as someone relatively like interested, but I don't really feel like I've got the nuance and the kind of you know all the political whatever shenanigans. But feels like that it's just a mouthpiece. It's just the, the, the kind of talking about it now, which is great, but actually doing something 
is still isn't yeah. there. And I think what's fascinating is, you know, when you draw it into sharp relief compared to the way that some governments and some countries reacted to the COVID crisis, mm. you know, when that is a crisis and people acted accordingly. Mm. And yet the impacts of the climate and ecological crisis, you know, there was a report recently that said that the impacts of climate and ecological crisis will soon be like having a COVID crisis several times a year. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, when you put it in that frame, do the actions that people are taking seem commensurate? Absolutely yeah. not. And they are they are not. I mean, let's let's be really clear about that. And you know, it is that, that what we what you want to see is is governments acting like there is a yeah. crisis. Yeah. And that is that is not really apparent. You know, there is there are great steps and there are, you know, there is positive action and there genuinely does seem a sentiment, a sentiment shift, people mm. are, you know, moving. But does it does it really match up to what we're seeing in terms of the science? Not not close, really. Yeah. Um, so I could talk to you about that for like another hour. But um, <laughs> what I really want to kind of dive into is um, and you've both touched on it a little bit about the, the work you do with communities, because I feel like that's somewhere that that we as individuals can kind of get involved and can. Because sometimes it's very difficult. Well, it's very difficult with everything climate related to feel like you're making a difference, but certainly on policy levels and things like that. So. Miriam, what's your focus moving forwards with regards to sort of communities on the ground, how we make individuals, um, uh, how we how we encourage individuals to make the shifts that are needed? Yeah, well, it's in, well, I suppose one thing to say is it's not necessarily about encouraging individuals to make the shifts. It's about recognising that we're, we're all social creatures and mm. we're influenced by working, working together, right? And Friends of the Earth's history has been based on local they used to, they they were called friends of the earth local groups and we have now uh, a kind of new tranche of of a, a newer generation of groups called climate action groups and we have Hugh might correct me I think it's over 300 now wow. isn't it across England Wales and Northern Ireland and those are groups of people who get together build coalitions in their communities and then we can both help them when there's things that come up locally that are, are of concern and we can kind of spot patterns that might mm. need an international intervention or a national one. Mm. But also, as, as this is the thing that Hugh was saying, this, this kind of global or national picture and the grassroots picture, yeah. it's a, a kind of dance of information between the two. And together we can work out what is, you know, what are the best steps that need to happen now and how can we support people? to to do that so we have we have groups already we want to yeah we obviously want to develop more and I think something that Hugh and I and are thinking about a lot about the the next strategy and kind of our tenure here is how we make sure that in everything we do at Friends of the Earth we're really listening to those people who might not be able to benefit from the transition that's about that, that's right. kind of low carbon transition and we're really listening to people who are disproportionately affected by climate change and ecological mm. collapse and all the horrors of things that are happening right now so there's a making sure that our network and our groups and friends of the earth centrally if you like are you know are listening it's really important Hugh, what kinds of things are some of these community action groups doing? So we work on, you know, a wide range of issues. What tends to happen is that we will have like a 
central ask that where we're trying to put a lot of the power that we have from these networks mm. towards a particular task because obviously when you do that you create you know you're going to create more change mm. so for example we've just been through uh, I think the sort of one of the biggest and uh, you know devolved set of elections in mm. history so we've had like you know elections at the metro mayor level at the senate um, level in Wales and at the local council levels you know we've had a huge range of elections and so what we were what we were aiming to do was to put as much power behind getting climate plans into those elections and right. making sure that that was front and center to those elections and you know very successfully did that so there will often be a large tranche of activity that is focused towards that but then the interesting thing is of course that all those groups are in themselves entities individual you know individual entities mm. that go off and have their own specific issues and that can be things local issues that are very you know, just pertinent to them. Mm. So there might be a road issue, there might be, um, you know, a work on wildlife, there mm. might be, you know, there any could be any number of different things that are relevant locally. And so they'll take action on those. It could be, you know, working on tree planting, it can be working yeah. on bees, it can be working on, you know, a local political issue, it can be working on a coal mine, it can mm. be, you know, and that's the extraordinary thing is there's always a, both the power of aimed at one singular issue, and then also the multitude of things they're acting do you provide kind of support for them in sort of I think you mentioned this earlier those sort of links and collaborations with for example local council or county council or whoever might be sort of the decision making powers because often it's quite difficult to realize well okay who is who is holding the purse here or who is the decision maker yeah exactly so and we do lots of training and support with those groups and particularly the the work around those those um elections that just happened in May, there's a, there's a great website actually worth people looking at called uh, Take Climate Action. Mm-hmm. So we have all of our resources on there and there was a lot to support local groups and also to share in their own communities about how do you navigate this? Mm. What's a letter template? How would you go in and ho- hold a conversation? We hosted lots of hustings, you know, what are the right asks? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it was a really interesting, it went really well. And there were wins off the back of that. So in Wales, for example, they now have a climate ministry that was one of the things that that we were asking for we also have many of the metro mayors who were elected had taken our pledge Mm. for for climate action which then means that that groups can hold those people to account and say well hang on a minute you actually said yes to this so where's you know where's the action as you said closing that kind of rhetoric to action gap and it is the first stage to get you know get people to say they will yeah so yeah and I think the other thing about what we provide and and support with that we want to really do a lot more of is is giving taking the big picture and packaging up bits of information and data that are really locally relevant right so for example trees we had a campaign to double tree cover mm-hmm. um for you know for obvious reasons in terms of both climate and access mm. to nature so one can get behind that and think well that sounds like a good idea but what lots of us probably want to know is we're walking our kids to school down a road that is just polluted and horrendous is like, where do we plant the trees? Mm, <laughs> like, yeah, where do yeah. we need to do this? If I want to have a conversation about doing this, where is it? So we did some experimental work with some, you know, great partners who were looking at, at putting together different data sets of land and access and soil type. 
mm. and right trees in right places. And, you know, end of it is a whizzy map that you can go in and say, here's my area. And it will go down to parish parish level and to very specific areas of land and say, here are the places that oh, we wow. would be most appropriate. And that means if you're going to go in and have a chat with your, you know, in your parish council, yeah. local councillor, as an, as an activist, you are armed with the right data to have a sensible yeah. conversation, which is kind of all anyone needs, even decision makers. You know, you're helping them. Yes. By saying, here's, here's, this, here's this data, actually, we could do this. And is that a map that we can access via the website? Anyone can access or? Yeah, well, yeah, oh, wow. absolutely. Yeah, and we'll send that on. And that's, that's I suppose, a little glimmer of where, of where we'd really like to take things here. Mm. Imagine that that level of of easy you know easy access to yeah, use the data yeah. to help us all have sensible conversations yes. about change but not just batteries about yeah. air pollution about inequalities mm. about home heating yeah. about things that are relevant to to all of us every day that's yeah that's what we're building so you could check out the, our postcode tool as well which which is a kind of early version of that. oh brilliant fab i'll link to those in the show notes I'm super Great. aware of time. Um, Hugh, I guess the the last thing I, I've got a bajillion questions, but um, you've talked a lot about sort of social justice and inclu- inclusivity and uh, making sure that the people that are going to be most affected are kind of involved in this. How do we in the UK help that to happen? And how do we help the, the people in the UK who are going to be most affected? And do you know, like how, how can I sat here in my, you know, relative comfort in my sort of semi-rural home, you know, white middle class, how, how can I help with this social justice piece? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And quite a large issue, because of course, one of the things that we face when saying things like that is that the environmental movement is not particularly diverse. (laughs) Uh, And it is beholden on all of us to be able to, you know, make sure that we listen and actively engage people to understand what, you know, what are the issues affecting those who, you know, who have been marginalised, who have Mm. been oppressed, who have been left behind, you know, who have been put at risk by a lot of the things that are happening. And it's really important that we make sure we reach out and you know, the thing that I think is important to stress here is you don't necessarily have to spend, you know, a, a huge amount of effort going out and building that yourself. There are people who are already incredibly well integrated into a lot of, commu- you know, lots of communities that the environmental movement isn't particularly well right. networked in. And it is really important that you, know, you don't just you don't have to t- also you don't have to take up all their time by the way because mm-hmm. they're really busy yes you can you can they have they produce a lot of information about what what matters what what's important what are the issues that are mm. concerning people so you know make sure that you understand where the information sources are where the groups are where the organizations that are really well tapped into communities that you're not tapped mm-hmm. into and read what they have to say. Listen right. to what, you know. Listen to their podcast. Read their report. Yes. Don't don't necessarily go to them and say I'm here to help because quite yes. frankly they've probably got ten thousand people saying that. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to go and do that, be incredibly explicit about what you are there to offer and why. Mm-hmm. Don't just turn up and say I am now your ally because mm, yes. actually that's not particularly helpful. Yeah. Um. And so I think that's that's the key. Do the work. Do the do the reading. Do the listening. Yeah. Go and find out what go and find out what matters. 
it's all, it's sort of on us. The information's yes. there. I think that's the that's the key thing. The information is readily available. Yeah. Yeah, we've been we've been doing a little bit of work with um, the local trust, for example, who who have a lottery endowment to distribute um, a large amount of funding to, I think it's 150 of the most deprived communities in the UK. Wow. And, you know, when you, when you talk about community needs, they've, they've asked them, there's yes. plenty of, you know, and that, that material is there. So yeah. let's go and let's go and do the work to really pay attention to that. And also, by the way, you know, when you look at these surveys, which say 75% of people think climate and you know, the climate ecological emergency is a big problem. When you when you ask people to listen to the biggest issues in their lives, they will put jobs, economy, health above climate. Mm. And so be very mindful of that. We have to be able to talk to those issues. Yeah. And how those issues are going to, you know, how those issues are going to be met, not in some utopian future, but now. Yeah. Through mm. through the transformation that we want to deliver. And so things like we have to revolutionize how we heat and light our homes. Yeah. Let's make sure that we are looking at where there are huge swathes of fuel poverty. There is yeah. there is no reason for us to have fuel poverty. We have, you know, we have the ability to remove fuel poverty from from our lives if we had the political will and yeah. we're willing to put the investment in. So let's make sure we're really focused on when we're talking about transition to changing heating and lighting and making you know changing our housing stock. Mm. Why, you know, let's make sure we start where there are those who are most marginalised by that problem at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Like we've covered a huge amount and I'm not sure how to kind of neatly wrap this up with a nice bow on top. But um, (laughs) Miriam, have you got, I guess, the two, well, the question I always want to ask people who are kind of there completely the wrong metaphor but at the coal face, you know, um, (laughs) uh, how optimistic (laughs) do you feel? Um. I am a kind of pragmatic optimist. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like if I, I feel like if I can go to bed and think, right, the work that I'm doing and the work that we're doing is making a, a good outcome more likely mm-hmm. and the worst outcome less likely, then that is a good way. Mm, I like that, yeah spending my time and that was that was actually from I totally stole that it was from a conversation with Chris Johnson who co co-authored a lot of Joanna Macy's work that you might be mm. with I just so person on a so I'll answer first on a personal level I find that quite helpful mm. because I think we are and that's good and then in terms of what are we seeing happening I do feel uh, you know pragmatic realism but cautious optimism there the awareness is shifted. Yes, there's still the gap on rhetoric, but it will be in. It is inescapable now. The moves that we have to make, mm. and that's a very different position to to where we found ourselves a few years ago. Yeah, Hugh, how about you? Got to follow that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I mean, I I struggle because you know, being an ecologist by sort of training, mm. I you know, I look at the world. And, you know, you see the science and the science paints a very pessimistic picture. Mm. And so, I, you know, I want I always want to start with that is the basis for my understanding of what is happening. And mm. until you start to see a shift, a shift in that, that's the shift in the science, then mm. then real optimism flows from that. But having said that, I, 
again, I don't really want to sort of have binaries of I'm either optimistic or pessimistic. Yes, yes, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pessimistic in diagnosis of the science. And, and what I'm really interested in is how just how fast can we go and how yeah. profound a change can we deliver to human society while doing it? Because, you know, as we as Miriam said, like the Industrial Revolution utterly failed to bring benefits to a vast swathe the people mm. and in, and enriched a small segment in its yes. early years yeah. obviously it had consequences further down the line and we can't afford to do that again we can't afford the same paradigm yeah in thinking we need a you know, complete change in how we interact with the natural world and a complete change in how people you know how suffering that's on this planet and you know poverty and inequality and all of these things we have the potential when you know going through this transition to deal with those and so that you know I'm sort of optimistic that there is that potential mm. in response and that is the only response to the science yeah is a is a profound shift in human society so it's do we make it do we make it through the forging process mm. if we do you know it really is going to be astonishing we yeah. really will have affected quite a, an incredible change on human society so I'm and, you know, humans humans have do have a tendency of home, handing in their homework at five minutes to midnight. And the, the problem with the science is you start to get into irreversible yes, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Five feedbacks. Minutes to midnight so that, be, yeah. That, that is a problem. But we are also ingenious, creative and mm. amazing creatures. So can we pull it off? Possibly, yes. <laughs> um very final question just a, a, the briefest answer you can give which is very mean because it's it's uh, but what's the one thing you would love us all to do now having listened to this uh you know when we're on our dog walk when we're on the school when we're cooking tea whatever we're doing what would you love us all to do now Hugh you can go first this time take collective action so we get our agency and our power from working with others in our neighborhoods with our you know friends with our relatives so work work with others yeah we all yeah. have you know I we all have power. It's been a, it's been suppressed, you know, removed or whatever. But we all have power. It's not for organisations like ours to give power to people. The power is there if you work collectively. Yeah. Mm. Find a buddy somewhere and find. Um, we'll yeah. find groups. You know, yeah, build, yeah, yeah. build groups and also connect, connect with people around you. We live in quite an individualistic society mm. at times, so it's just wonderful to watch the power and the agency from people working together yeah. on these issues. Amazing. Um, you've got to come up with something else now, Miriam. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you took my word. I mean, that is the big one. The other one is use your use our vo- use your voice. Yeah. In whatever way, in having conversations, even if they're uncomfortable, in asking questions to people who yeah. are in positions of you know of power, whether that's you know in the PTA meeting. Yes. Or, yeah. 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 You know, or when you're shopping, or whatever it is. Or with your parish councillor talking mm. about where can we put trees, use use your voice, yeah. have, have conversations. And that's, you know, that's what's needed. More of us using our voice, more of us taking collective action. And Friends of the Earth is really here to facilitate and support those things happening. So, yeah. Amazing. That's fabulous. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm going to put all the links that we've mentioned into the show notes so people can come and find them and can come and find the relevant pages and things on Friends of the Earth. But thank you both so much for your time. I'm sure you're um, very busy, not not uh, not just with your job, but with your little people and things as well. And I just think it's fabulous that you're doing this this job share together. Um, so thank you. Thanks so much, Jen. Great thank to talk. Thank you so much.
sustainable-ish, you wonderful sack of loveliness, with me, Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review, and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is, and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time.